All right. Uh, let's see. I'll go ahead and there in the chat is the handout again, in case anyone didn't get it. Um, this is a night where you're going to have several scripture references. So if nothing else, I think it's handy just so you can go back and refer to those later. Um, but tonight we are going to be talking about hell. Uh, and this will be at least two weeks, maybe three. I'm still kind of working out how much there is to say about all of it. Um, but as we usually do, I want to start with, you know, what impressions you already have, right? Uh, what have you heard that hell is like? Uh, what is the purpose of it? Um, so, you know, again, as always, what you think can be what you've heard from other people that you totally disagree with. Uh, what kind of ideas are out there about what hell is, um, what it does? Hell is hell. Okay, right. I mean, you just use that word, and it has connotations. It's hot, fire. Okay, yeah, fire. Right. That's that's a very common image. And again, you know, there's different levels of, or opinions on how symbolic or how literal you take that. Torture. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I've come to believe that the that the torture, the the problem, the terrible thing, is is the beings that that. God is not there. Mm. God is not there. So it, it doesn't really matter what else, good or bad, there may be there. God is not there. And, yeah, and the absence, so to absence me, of God. That is the big deal is God is not there. We are without mm. God. Yeah, yeah, right. Because we have God, we we have God's presence in some sense here, but not fully, and heaven is fully God's presence. And so, yeah, it makes sense that we can think of hell as, the absence and, you know, with it. Um, I mean, one of the classic ideas comes from Dante's Inferno, which you know, I haven't read it up. Many of us actually read it, but we're probably familiar with the idea that there's like circles to hell and each one is associated with a different deadly sin. And there's kind of these ironic punishments based on, you know, whatever your greatest sin was, you're going to have some ironic way that you're, uh, suffering that same sort of thing for eternity. Right? And that's been very popular. I think that's been very influential in kind of our imagination when it comes to what hell is like. Right? Um, and, you know, I, so I assume most of us, you know, I've been taught that it is that idea of eternal torment, right, of, of torture uh, in some sense, right, whether that's literal like devils poking with pitchforks or it's uh being burned alive forever or in a more um general way of, of being absent from god right if, if you're with us for our great divorce book we're seeing that's another vision of it where it's it's not there's not fire but it is terrible um but as we go through this i really want to focus around three different ideas right traditionally that have been associated what hell is or what hell does that either the fire of hell uh, torments or destroys or purifies right those are the three i would say major views although i'd say the the torment view has kind of been the most common uh, at least especially for for us and honestly you know as i've studied this a lot and read a lot i think it's hard to say that the bible is 100% always consistent on one of those three, right? You can actually find all three of those in scripture in some sense. And if we're honest, we tend to kind of latch onto one aspect and then interpret the other 
through that, right? Other passages that seem to point to a different one, we interpret that with the one that we already are leaning towards, right? And, and so what I'm gonna try and do with these uh, classes is just kind of present the evidence, um, the strengths and weaknesses of, of each view, and just acknowledge, right, that, that we are interpreting. We always are, I am. Um, and so we're gonna lean one way or the other, and, and that's just natural, but the problem is when we're not aware of that, right? When we think we're just reading what it says, but we're actually privileging certain passages over others, right? Um, we need to be aware when we're doing that, uh, especially here. And so as we're trying to have a more cohesive view of, of hell, of, of afterlife punishment or whatever, <clears throat> maybe an important way to focus that is to think about what each view says about God, right? How does it reflect God's nature? Uh, is this, uh, right, each one is going to paint God in a different way. It's, it's how we understand God. And I think the main thing is we avoid uh, interpretations that give us a bad view of God, because frankly, I think some do, um, right? And we can, again, with all these things in this whole, whole class, uh, there's, there's mystery to it, right? And we can admit that, that our beliefs, there's mystery, but they're not contradictory. Right. Uh, something we'll talk about probably next week is right. Goodness. We have some idea of what that means. Right. And something that's the opposite of good. We can't say that's still good. Otherwise, that word means nothing. Um, so another question to kind of start us off thinking about this is what if there were no hell? Right. No punishment, no consequences, no discipline uh, after you die. Um, would you live differently? How would that affect things if there just were absolutely no hell in any way, shape, or form? Maybe if we didn't know the right way, then we might be more prone to do that. But if we know what we're supposed to do, I don't know that we would do that. Yeah, right. It, do, do the. Yeah, right. Do so the you still. Gonna, that it right. So all the instructions of God or Jesus saying, live this way, these things. Um, listen to me, that's all still there, but without the idea of, or else, right? At least. Well, well, I guess, and, and I guess, you know, I've thought about that, that, that beyond the fact of, of the obvious need for Christianity and, and, and being uh, under the grace of God because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's also, if you live by God's instruction, everything works out a lot better. And we're certainly seeing that now in our society mm. after a couple of three generations mm. of just blatantly throwing some of those things away that, that, that Christian lifestyle, uh, we're beginning to see now the results of that. And so the consequences of some of these act, uh, actions of, of drifting away from God's plan have already come to pass before mm -hmm. we ever die and get to hell. Yeah. In some right. ways, some ways our society is living to some degree in hell right now because yeah. of some decisions we've made over the last two or three yeah. generations. And, and kind of, I mean, it's not really a recent thing, right? Society's always done that. We've been yeah. on each other. Uh, so I think that's an important aspect of this. That, yeah, there's consequences in this life. Uh, we won't talk much about the Old Testament tonight because the Old Testament doesn't really have a concept of hell. Um, and yet they still had a lot of teaching and about how you should live and it was very focused on there's consequences in this life if you don't live a, a right way 
right? Maybe consequences for you, maybe you're going to cause pain to other people. And hopefully you care about that. You know, if you're a good neighbor, you're not going to want to do things that hurt them. Um, and so, you know, it's important that we put it in the right perspective, right? An important verse to me is in 1 John chapter 4, 18. Uh, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and over fears has not reached perfection in love. Uh, to me, it's important that our, our faith is not fear-based, first and foremost. And right? we could have a conversation about, you know, the idea of fearing the Lord and what that means. Um, but John is clear here that, that love is, not, is, is the bigger uh, focus, and there's no fear in love, because um, fear is about punishment, and that shouldn't be our, our primary motivation, right? Are we motivated more by fear or by love to, to serve God, to, to be people God wants to be? What motivates our evangelism right, as we tell the good news? Are we spreading good news, or are we telling bad news and then some fire insurance, right? I mean, that's kind of one of the classic ways that I think we tell the good news is here's some bad news, but here's a way out, right? That doesn't seem to actually be very consistent with the message uh, that was preached in, in, uh, in scripture. All right. So as we get into this tonight, we're going to learn, we're going to have a lot of uh, Greek and Hebrew terms um, to really understand, right? Because a big problem I think with our interpretation of this comes from when we hear a word like hell and then we just have all these associations and history and uh, that's kind of in the back of our mind. It's not really part of what that word meant when the scripture writers wrote it. All right. Um, so when we hear some of these words, were the writers thinking the same things that we would think of? Well, probably not. Right. Um, so even the, the word hell, right? Hell is an English word because we're speaking English uh, that comes from the Anglo-Saxon. It means to hide. And it doesn't really connect to any uh, idea uh, that's in scripture. We'll look at the word, the specific word that gets translated from Greek into that. Uh, but again, you hear, as we've already kind of mentioned, you hear the word hell and all sorts of things come up in your mind. And so we're just trying to see if that's what would have been in the mind of, of the writers. So like I mentioned, in the Old Testament, we don't have a word for hell. The closest is the concept of Sheol. Right? And we talked about this Early on, we started with the Old Testament, but Sheol is really just the realm of the dead, right? Hell is not a good translation. I think the King James would translate it that way, but that's not accurate, and so modern translations don't do that. Uh, grave or pit is probably a better translation. Uh, it's not a place of punishment. It's just kind of where the dead go. It's not a good place, but it's just kind of, it's kind of nothing. Um, and then as you go into the New Testament, or even as the Old Testament, Hebrew was translated into Greek, the word that they used for that was Hades, right? which is uh, from Greek mythology, you can come get that. Uh, so example of that very clearly is in Acts 2.31, uh, Peter is quoting Psalm 16, and the Psalm said Sheol, and Peter uses the word Hades, right? So it's the same concept. Uh, so again, it's not hell, it's not the place of punishment, it's just kind of that in-between place where the dead are. Um, now, you could say uh, there's a tradition that says Jesus went there between uh, his death and the resurrection. Uh, we've talked about that before. And again, uh, another issue with that is, well, how literal is that, right? Is Sheol, is Hades really a place, or is that a metaphorical, metaphorical description of being dead, being in your grave? 
Uh, I tend to go with the second one, but you know, it's, it's kind of up in the air. So the actual word that, that we translate as hell is Gehenna. And uh, that word is actually pretty rare. Uh, it only occurs 12 times in the entire Bible. And interesting enough, most of those are from Jesus. Um, and really, it's only six unique statements because several of those 12 are, you know, it's in one gospel and then the, another gospel repeats the exact same phrase. Uh, so it's only six unique statements where the word that we translate hell is used, right? So it's not in any of Paul's writings. It's not at all in Acts, right? As we think about them being evangelistic and preaching the gospel, uh, they never use the word that we associate with hell. It's interesting. Uh, and actually, if you look at the end of your handout on the last page, I've got all 12 of those references uh, written out for you. If you want to go look at them. Um, and, uh, but now there are plenty of other places that talk about some sort of afterlife punishment uh, or final judgment, right? And we'll look at some of those terms, right? So the question is, are they all talking about the exact same thing or is it uh, slightly different perspectives on slightly different things, right? The lake of fire, for example, in Revelation, is that the exact same thing as Gehenna, right? Um, don't immediately conflate those. They may be very similar and looking at the same thing from a different direction, but uh, we wanna be careful that distinguish between those terms. Um, and I think it's important to recognize to see one of the ways in which we might have overemphasized hell in our theology, right? As I've said before, the phrase heaven and hell does not occur in the Bible, right? We kind of pair those as the central part of the story, and that's not really the story that the Bible is telling. Um, it's, we don't want to ignore it, and we do want to take it seriously, but we want to give it the proper place. So as I said, the, uh, the Greek word that's translated as hell is Gehenna. And what's interesting about this is Gehenna is an actual physical place on earth. Um, at least initially that's what it refers to, right? If, if there is a spiritual or metaphorical understanding of Gehenna, that's secondary to what it actually was and is. And so it actually, it actually goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, Gehenna is kind of a Greek version of the word for the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And this is a gorge that's just southwest of Jerusalem, right outside. Uh, it's also called uh, Topheth, which means place to spit upon. So you're already getting uh, the idea that it's not a good place. Uh, and what's most memorable about the Valley of Hinnom is that it was the place where child sacrifice occurred when Israelites were doing that. So go to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and we'll see this. Uh, Second Chronicles, not a book we go to a whole lot. <laughs> uh, verse 3, right? he's talking about King Ahaz, who was one of the bad kings. Right? He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 1 says, uh, he walked like a lot of the other kings of Israel and made cast images for the Baals. Verse 3, he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Right? So that's Gehenna, this, this gorge right outside Jerusalem. And he made his sons pass through the fire, according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. All right, so like this is the worst thing that you can do, right? Especially for an Israelite is to off to sacrifice your own children uh, to any God, right? Um, whether they're doing that to the Lord, which God doesn't want, or they're doing it to some other God, right? It's equally terrible. So it's kind of like the lowest low you can get 
is this is the place where that happened. Uh, also, 2 Kings 23, Josiah, he was a good king. He like defiles this site that was holy to, to Baal by kind of making it where you can't do that anymore. And then Jeremiah talks also about this place, right? So Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, he, Jeremiah lives very close to the time when Israel uh, was conquered by Babylon. And so he talks about Gehenna being the place where uh, bodies are going to be piled as part of God's judgment, right? So Jeremiah chapter three, 7, uh, 32, maybe 31 and 32, let me find that. And they go on building the high place of Topheth, right? That's another name for it, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind. And this is God speaking. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. They were buried in Topheth until there is no more room. Right, saying, look, you're doing the worst thing you can do so you, this is going to end up being the place where you are going to be burned and suffer, right? So when Babylon comes a little bit later, that's what happens. This is a place where they pile dead bodies. Um, and so, right, very negative associations for the Jewish people. And there are some writings in between the time of the Old and New Testaments where some writers use Gehenna as a metaphorical place of afterlife punishment. Um, and so the question is, which tradition is Jesus picking up on? Uh, those other writers like Enoch and, and uh, other people like that, or is he picking up Jeremiah? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the idea that he's pick, Jesus is picking up from Jeremiah, right? That he is thinking the same way, that because of Israel's sins, um, there's going to be a day of reckoning, right? It was Babylon and Jeremiah's day and Jesus' day, it's going to be Rome, because they are um, continue to fight against Rome in the way that God doesn't want. Uh, they're going to suffer. And so Jesus is basically saying that the same thing is going to happen, that Rome is going to punish you, um, and it's going to happen here, right? And so in AD 70, when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, once again, Gehenna was the place where dead bodies were buried. And so this is often what Jesus is talking about is he's trying to prevent his people from going down this path. It's going to lead them to the exact same place that they did before, and it's going to lead to the temple being destroyed again. Uh, and so, you know, Jesus has lots of predictions about this. Uh, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, it's all kind of the same thing. And the problem is, very often those predictions of Roman destruction get misread as references to final judgment when Jesus comes again, right? Jesus is pretty clear in those passages that this is what's going to happen within a generation, right? He says some people that are around now are going to see this happen. And yet we misread that and think he's talking about someday, right? So in his judgment, I think it's fair to see it that way. It's judgment from God, but primarily it's, it's the self-destructive consequences in this life, right? Um, our sin, whether that's our personal sin or communal sin, puts us through hell. Um, now, you can say that there might be points when Jesus is using Gehenna in a spiritual or metaphorical sense. But again, I think we need to see that as secondary to this original meaning, right? That he's picking up this very real place that had this uh, terrible idea in their minds of where uh, there was child sacrifice and, 
and corpses piled on each other, right? Um, there's a writer named uh, Brad Jersick. He has this book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which has been really helpful to me. And he says something inter interesting about this. We ought to also note the irony and the incongruence of the church utilizing the very place where God became violently offended by the literal burning of children as our primary metaphor for a final and eternal burning of God-word people in eternal flames, or literal flames. I just saying, this place was so offensive to God, it's kind of odd that we would choose that as the main thing that God's going to use to do to us. Um, and that's, that's a little troubling that we pick up on something that God obviously hates as what God wants to do to us. Um, so whatever hell is, right, or this concept of afterlife punishment, um, I think it's also important to recognize that no one's experiencing it yet, right, because we haven't reached the final judgment. Um, now, people, I would say, are in Hades, right? They're in the grave, again, however literally you want to take that. Um, and so that, that final judgment is coming. But, so, just using that particular word, Gehenna, if that's more focused on this life, what terms can we think of applying to the next life and the punishment or uh, the rewards of the next life? Here I want to talk about the, the word that's often translated as eternal. Well, I guess I should stop. Any questions or comments? Um, or maybe it might be better if, if uh, I think all these questions and we'll have time to kind of work through this as we go. And I can just present a lot of this stuff because there's a lot here. All right, well, let's talk about this idea of eternal or uh, in the Greek, ionios. All right, so this is a very common word that we see a lot through the New Testament. It can refer to eternal life, very common in uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, but there's other places that talk about eternal destruction or eternal discipline, eternal punishment. Again, now we translate that's another issue. So the question is whether eternal is the only or the best way to translate that word. Um, and really it's about, the, the bigger question we're asking is, is this word, ionios, refer to the duration of something or the quality, right? Is it about the amount of time or is it just a type? Right, because when we hear eternal, our first instinct is to think it just goes on and on forever, right? Or everlasting is another way that gets translated, which is the same. It's about time. Um, so is it unlimited time or is it more timelessness, right? How do we understand God? That God's just around for years and years and years, or God is almost outside of time? Does it happen forever, like goes on forever, or it just endures forever? Um, and really, to go to the more of the biblical mindset, this word is, is really about the age to come, right? So the Greek ion uh, translates uh, the Hebrew olam. Which, you know, so ion is, <laughs> eon is Greek, olam is Hebrew, and that just means age, right? And very often in the biblical mindset, you have the present age and the age to come, right? But that's kind of how they thought about things. And so it's, it's Ionios that's referring, it has qualities of the age to come, the coming age. Um, and so it's, it's about now and then, right? And these two separate, um, I, I think it's not really about places or even distinct times, but the kind of the qualities of them, right? How things are in this age 
and how they'll be in the coming age. And the really interesting thing, and I think key thing about the New Testament, is that because of Jesus' resurrection and the gift of the Spirit, the age to come is broken into this present age. Right? We're kind of living in between the times. Yet we're still in this age, and yet we can experience the gifts and, and some aspects of that coming age. Right? The kind of fancy phrase that we learned last week was inaugurated its eschatology, right? The idea that what's happening then has already started in some sense now, right? And so, for example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus almost always talks about having eternal life, right? He talks about in the present tense, not that someday you will have eternal life and live forever, but you have eternal life now. It's something that you can tap into and, and live in this different way, right? So it's not just about the future. Uh, it can be present now. And so again, to think about how this works, let's look at one example in uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse, verse 12. Because right, we're trying to figure out, is eternal really the best? Is it talking about how long it lasts, or the, that it goes on forever, or it's something that happens and then endures? So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. You see the writer use the, the phrase, um, he is... Uh, He's entered once for all into the holy places of Jesus, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption, right? And when we look on the positive side of this, it becomes pretty obvious that he's not talking about how Jesus is eternally going to be redeeming us, right? That, that redemption process is going to go on and on forever and ever. Um, he even says there, right, the whole point is it happened once for all. Um, so it's more about redemption happens once, right? Jesus' death and resurrection, but then the effects of that endure into the coming age, or you can say forever, but it's more about that age, right? So it's, it's something that happens at one point and then extends on uh, the effects of that event extend forever, right? So it's, we should think of it the same way as we get to the negative side of that. So this we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And like I said, we're going to be flipping around a lot tonight. Uh, hopefully you got the handout so you can see all these references. Um, and again, there, the, the term that's used, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, uh, these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, right? separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Right? So eternal destruction, what is that, what is that saying? Is saying that they'll eternally be destroyed, right? That process of being destroyed is going to happen on and on and on forever, which is kind of that traditional view, or that they're destroyed and that lasts for eternity, right? Um, just to go into like the grammar of it, eternal is an ad, is, it's not an adverb. It's not uh, describing an action or modifying an action as in eternally destroying. It's an adjective. It modifies an event, right? It's, it's eternal destruction, right? The destruction is eternal. It's not eternal destroying, which I, I think is, right, it seems like a pretty small distinction, but that makes a difference in whether we go with that traditional, sometimes called the infernalist view, the idea that the, it's eternal torment or torment going on forever, um, or if it's destruction that happens and then that endures, right? And so, this is one place where I want to move more to the second view that I talked about, the idea that 
the fire of hell uh, destroys. Um, and a very helpful book, if you want to look more into this, where a lot of this comes from, is called The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge. He's actually a, a Church of Christ writer. I think he passed away a few years ago. Uh, but he's written several books focused on this idea. Um, so you may have heard of it from him before. Um, but we want to talk about what do we mean when we hear the word destruction, right? I mean, if you say something was destroyed, if I called you and said, hey, my house was destroyed in a fire, I mean, it's pretty obvious. The implication is the house is gone, right? The house is not going to be on fire forever. Uh, destroyed means it happened and it's over. And yet, what's interesting is so often when we see the word destroyed or destruction or perish in Scripture, we interpret that to mean something other than the plain meaning of it, right? Uh, I mean, the classic example is John 3, 16, right? If you're going with the infernalist torment view, uh, that verse would say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not be tortured forever with fire, but have eternal life, right? <laughs> that's, not, that's not what it says, right? They shall not what? Shall not perish, right? We all know that verse, but we tend to take perish to mean something other than what the plain meaning suggests, right? And this is actually a very common way that scripture talks about the fate of um, those who go a different direction, we shall say. Um, so I'll, I'll hit these pretty quick. You can turn there if you want, or just I've got most of the quote on the handout. So one example is Matthew 10, 28. This is one of those places where Jesus uh, refers to Gehenna. He talks about fearing the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in Gehenna, right? Um, and the Greek word there is apolomai. Um, now him could be God, right? God destroying it, but it's actually unclear. It could be death personified or Satan destroying. Uh, his point is that right, people can kill you, but they can't kill your soul. Um, but he does seem to imply there the soul can be destroyed, right? And I'm just going to kind of go through all these, and then we can kind of summarize them after. Uh, Romans 2.12, Paul says that all who have sinned apart from the law will perish, right? It's the same word uh, that was used before, and it's the same word that's in John 3.16. Um, Apollomai, right? It's, it's Paul's most common term for the fate of sinners. Um, and he contrasts it with the gift of immortality and eternal life that God gives uh, to us. And wrath and fury and anguish and distress all come with it. Um, but perish, right? It's not required that all those things go on forever. Uh, then in 1 Thessalonians 5, Two and three, Paul talks about right with the day of the Lord, uh, sudden destruction will come upon them. Uh, and there it's another Greek word, alethros. All right, destruction, similar concept, but different word for it. And then also in Galatians chapter six, verse eight, he talks about others reaping corruption. Right, um, right. If you sow in the flesh, you reap corruption. Sow in the spirit, um, then it's you reap life. And so there you see the opposite of life is not torture. The opposite of life is death or, or non-life, right? Um, one of those, I think it was back in 2 Thessalonians, talks about being apart from the presence of God, which I think Don mentioned earlier, right? If God is life, to be apart from that presence is not life, right? And, and even what Paul talks about there, 
of reaping corruption, well, that applies in this life and the next, right? It's not just about consequences then, but if you're making selfish choices now, self-centered choices now, there's going to be consequences you'll experience here too. Um, and so that's another word, phthora, uh, I think. How do you say that? It's a, a complicated one. So, right, destruction, perish, corruption, um, they all seem to have the same implication of that it's just over, right? That um, the opposite of life is to not be alive, right? Destruction is something that happens and endures forever, right? That's the common biblical image, right? And we could spend a lot more time going into this, uh, but that's the common way that's very, that many passages talk about, that it's not the punishment is ongoing, the punishment happens, and, and that's it, right? And here's another good place where we can contrast, um, you know, Paul in the New Testament with Plato and Greek philosophy, right? Because Plato used all the same terms that Paul would use for death or destruction or perish, uh, and says the soul is immune to those things. That can't happen, right? But Paul and, and maybe even Jesus are saying that that can happen to those who reject God, right? Immortality, it can be argued, is, is not inherent to us. That's a gift of God. Uh, Romans 2.7 talks about that. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about immortality being a gift that God gives, not something we just automatically have. And so if we don't have that, you can take that to imply the destruction would be the fate. Uh, all right, so that's that's a lot of information, like I said, and we're already getting close to our time. And so kind of the final question to think about is, is destruction not good enough, right? If, if we're wanting um, like a further punishment or torment or torture even for, for certain people, why is it that we want that? Um, why is missing out on the life in God's presence not bad enough. Um, you know, God's wrath, that's another concept we could spend time talking about, but very often it's best understood as God just giving us what we think we want, right? God handing us over, that's the language of Romans 1. Um, and so that's kind of the idea here, that uh, people uh, essentially are saying they want to turn from the source of life, and God lets that happen. Um, and so I just want to end with a quote from Augustine. He talks about the idea of, of um, punishment uh, and crime. It says, where a very serious crime is punished by death and the execution of the sentence takes only a minute, no law is considered that minute as the measure of the punishment, but rather the fact that the criminal is forever removed from the community of the living. Right? His point is, you don't have to have them punished forever for it to be justice. That eternal, that ongoing punishment is carrying out the sentence the fact that they're removed, right? That they're, they're no longer in community of the living. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Augustine's other writings emphasized this concept of everlasting torture uh, because he didn't know Greek. But I think there he, he is on point that, right, it's how we understand justice, right? That's going to be a concept that, a question we continue to look at in the coming weeks um, of what it means for God to be just. Uh, because I believe God is, and right, there needs to be some sort of justice in the end, but we want to be careful that we don't apply our kind of human misunderstood ideas of justice and import those onto God, or even assume that God has some form of justice that's even less just than our own. Um, and so that is one perspective, right, uh, the, of what many, what scripture seems to say 
is the fate. So next week, we'll look at some others. <laughs> so hopefully giving you a lot to think about here. Uh, and uh, keep thinking about your questions because we will have time to, to think about those in coming weeks as well. So yeah, I have a yeah. question. Yeah. Hannah, yeah. where do you see? Because like I'm in my Bible app and, mm -hmm. and I typed it in and that, it's not popping up. Is it? Yeah. That's, so that's the Greek word uh, that it translates as hell. So a lot of translations, uh, you can go, like I said, look at the last page of the handout. Um, if you go to any of those verses, it'll say, you know, better to cut your hand off and, than to be thrown into hell, right? But the word that Jesus would have used is Gehenna. And most modern translations will have a footnote where it says hell, so that you look down, it'll say Greek, Gehenna. Okay. Because, yeah, because mine's saying hell, and I couldn't find that. So, okay, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you just type hell into your search, uh, it'll probably pull up those those places, and that's so that's the Greek word there. Yeah, so glad I can clarify. Thank you. All right. Well, <laughs> hope that was interesting. I know these aren't the most ex uh, most encouraging weeks talking about this. Uh, <clears throat> eventually, that again, we're, we are thinking about the nature of God and what God is like and what God does to to make things right in the end. That is our hope. And I, I believe that that'll happen, and that's something that God should care about and Scripture cares about, too. But uh, as we think about how that works, I hope you have some food for thought. So thanks, everyone.